0: Uh, I'm a priest today, not because of the seminary, but I think I'm a priest today because my story as a black man in the church is not an unusual story. Many of the black priests that were ordained before me had the same, a similar story. As a matter of fact, when I was refused ordination, a couple of black, many black priests around the country called me and talked to me about their journeys. And it made me realize You know, I'm just one of many that are going through this, these kinds of experiences in church. It gave me the strength to just keep on keeping on in spite of all that I was facing.
1: Hi, and welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Reclaiming Social Justice a podcast that seeks to read the signs of the times through the lens of Catholic social teaching and rediscover our call to work for a more loving and just society. My name is Danny, and I am the Social Justice Coordinator at St. Anthony Catholic Church in Tigard, Oregon, and the host of this show. If you're listening to this podcast for the first time, welcome. I'm so glad you are tuning in and hope you subscribe to get future episodes. You can subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts, such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. If you're a fellow St. Anthony parishioner, um, welcome. Good to see you. Good to have you here with us as well. Remember, you can conveniently locate this podcast at our church website at satiger.org forward slash reclaiming sj. Whatever platform you choose to listen on, you can expect new episodes monthly on the last Wednesday of the month. So as the title of this episode suggests, in this episode, you're going to hear the not so unusual story of a black man in the church. But this isn't just any other black man. This is the story of the Auxiliary Bishop of New Orleans, the Most Reverend Fernand Cherie. Bishop Cherie is a Franciscan friar who has been ordained for over 40 years. In our conversation, he shares his lived experiences of racism in the seminary as well as the parish. He describes specific moments of crisis he has gone through in his ministry, such as when he was refused ordination and the time he was ousted from a parish for bringing strangers to the church also talks about the difficulties of obedience and the power of trusting in God's providence. So as you can see, we cover lots of ground. So I'm really confident that you're going to like this episode, especially given uh, the time of its publication. We're still in Black History Month. And actually, by the time that this episode comes out, it will be the end of Black History Month. So it's very timely and very fitting that we close with this very powerful story by Bishop Sheree. If you like this episode, please remember to to share it with your friends. Remember, you can always send me your thoughts and recommendations for this podcast by completing a short feedback form, which you can find in the show notes. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Bishop Cherie. Enjoy and make sure you stick around after the interview as I connect themes from the Bishop's story to our Catholic social tradition. All right, Bishop, why don't we just jump into things? Who or what first taught you to live a faith that does justice?
0: There were two groups of people. First of all, it was my family. Uh, I grew up in uh, the southern border of New Orleans, very working class, middle class, lower middle class uh, area of New Orleans, and my family really taught me a lot about what it meant to protect the family, to support the family, to and be about the the values of that keep us united together as a family. And so uh, that, that would be the, the, the first and primary teachers of uh, justice for me uh, in my life. Second one was the group of nuns who taught me and worked with me throughout my life. Um, uh, the Sisters of the Holy Family, the Sisters of the Blessed Sacrament, primarily those two groups of sisters were were the really uh, inspiration behind all? Helped me to not only know the faith, but to how to promote the faith in, uh, and do works of justice in the process. I grew up uh, during the civil rights time, uh, the latter part of the civil rights, and so there was a lot of things about justice that that really had to be done, especially in the south. And so the nuns. Uh, really prepared me for that. And especially when they kind of guided me towards priesthood and everything else, uh, the way they did. (laughs) So I have to say that they were the real inspirations for me.
1: Dive into that for us. Um, Can you share with us what were some of those values or lessons that your father or the sisters passed on to you?
0: I think one of the things that was real key for me was that uh, they exposed me to some of the injustices happening within the black community in New Orleans. Uh, as they exposed me to that, they kind of uh, made me conscious of the fact that, well, this is how it is in this area, but basically it's not like that everywhere else. And, and it made me question, well, why, why is it different here? I began to see how some of the uh, system, uh, systematic issues of racism and so there were the haves and the have-nots. And how the, how we as people of faith must must address those. I saw it in my classmates and their families because we weren't all on the same level. We, you know, some of my classmates were very poor. So we had to help each other. We had to, you know, take care of each other. I remember my my uh, going to uh, stand by with my grandmother and them. And uh, sometimes some of my classmates were with me and she would just feed us all because she said, that's the way you got to do it. You got to take care of one another. And uh, so it taught me to be caring and sensitive to other people's needs and everything.
1: So you mentioned the nuns that played a pivotal role in um, your formation and and discernment in becoming a priest. Talk a little bit about your experience in the seminary for us.
0: Oh, seminary was horrible. I'll give you some examples of that uh, for me. Uh, I'll never forget. Uh, uh, I was at this uh, seminary college, and we were taking an introduction to sociology course. Uh, we got to the chapter on blacks and Hispanics. The professor said, "We're going to skip that chapter and take it in next semester's course." Well, you know what next semester's course was entitled? Deviants. And so I went ballistic in a class. I, I, I couldn't believe he he would just do that. Some yeah. of my classmates couldn't understand why I was upset.
1: So he was calling blacks and Hispanics deviants.
0: Yes, and uh, so um, so he was, uh, and he didn't know how to handle it. Uh, The professor didn't know how to handle it either, because I mean it was obvious racism right there, you know. And uh, and so that was one thing in particular. The other thing, I uh, you know, in the seminary, they tried to form you in a way that you always maintain the status quo. It's not they 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 really don't really like people that uh stretch the the norms sometimes, so uh another experience I had was uh you know uh, part of your training in the priesthood is uh to do uh clinical pastoral education, and most of the guys did it in the hospitals uh and I didn't want to go in the hospital i i, I felt like as a black person I wanted to be where black folks were, so i said uh I wanted to do it at a prison. So I, I did. I actually applied for uh, 10 programs across the country, and uh, I was accepted at nine of the 10. The 10th one was uh, uh, a prison in California where the, the chaplain refused me, and he sent me this real nasty letter <laughs> about who did I think I was as a, uh, a Black man in in the church and all like this. I mean, it was a very, very challenging letter. And so I, I responded to his letter, just really talking about uh, how I felt God had blessed me to be who I am. So he read my letter and he responded to that letter saying that uh, he wanted me to understand I would be challenged about who I was, especially as a, a Black man. And a Catholic in, in the prison system. And he didn't want me to come naively into the experience. And he, then he said, if I'm still open to uh, coming, he would welcome me in the program. And so I, that's where I went. <laughs> now, the seminary thought I shouldn't have even done that. I should have I just gone somewhere else and, and, and worked with other programs. But I, I really was happy to, to work in that program. And, be a part of it. It was a big prison. They had 2,300 inmates. The average age was 24. We did everything with the inmates. We went, went to therapy sessions with them. We counseled them. We prayed with them. It was, it was really, really a wonderful experience. It awakened me to the power of God, kept me safe, and uh, protected me throughout the whole experience.
1: You know, Bishop, as you share this story and your experience in the seminary, I can't help but wonder if there's um, people listening to this episode who are in shock, you know, at hearing that the, this type of racism that existed at that time, and moreover, that it also existed in our church institutions.
0: Right. And I came back from that prison experience with the CPE program, you know, into the seminary and that. I- I came back a changed person. I mean, I was, it awakened me to some things that I needed to focus my attention on. So I did that. The funny thing happened, you know, I I came back making the decision that I wanted to be a priest. It was like uh, six months later uh, when I go before the, the formation board, they knew I had come back changed and different. And I was acting a little bit more, really a little bit more responsible about what I needed to do as a, uh, a black man in the church. I didn't know at the time, but they told me that they thought that I had made decisions regarding my priesthood, or uh, my working in the church, without their consent and approval. And so I was refused ordination. I'll never forget what, the, uh, what that was like when I appeared before the formation committee and they they voted it was a five-four vote, five, four ordination, four against. And it was just based upon the fact that uh, many of them felt like as a, a one one guy, one of my professors said to me, Well, you act like you can do anything you want as you want to do it. As a black man in this church, you can't be that. I mean, it was said to me like it's those kinds of experiences that as a black person in the church, you know, what 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 did you base those things on? You know, I, I challenged them on it and then they, they got upset because I was challenging. Them. So <laughs> It was a no-win situation for me. And so what happened was I they gave me something to do. I went, which was the normal thing that a guy does when uh, they reach the uh, point of ordination. Uh, you spend that year in a parish and, and work as a deacon in the church and uh, well, uh, they told me I, I, to go into a parish and work, even though I wasn't a deacon that they wanted me to still do, the, still wouldn't, do what I uh, would, would have done uh, as an ordained minister. Six months later, they gave they ordained me to the diaconate, the and then three months later, I was ordained priest. <laughs> so it just delayed my ordination more than anything. But it was a question. It's just what they did and how they did it and what they said about it, that really was very, very uh, challenging. Uh, I'm a priest today, not because of the seminary, but I think I'm a priest today because my story as a black man in the church is not an unusual story. Many of the black priests that were ordained before me had the same, a similar story. As a matter of fact, when I was refused ordination, a couple of Black, many Black priests around the country called me and talked to me about their journeys. And it made me realize, you know, I'm just one of many that are going through this, these kinds of experiences in the church. It gave me the strength to just keep on keeping on in spite of all that I was facing. When I was ordained a priest, I was told twice, there's no place for you here in this diocese. And I was a, I'm a Dane for the Archdiocese of New Orleans. They had 156 churches at the time of my ordination. And I was told there's no place for me. Those are the kinds of experiences of racism. And that's why you don't have a large number of Black priests in the Catholic Church, because it's not that we aren't interested. It's all the hell you have to go through to be yourself in the midst of all. A lot of people just don't want to hear that, and they don't. But they, they say you're making it up. You can't make that.
1: So given your role and your connections with the community, would you say that these kinds of experiences are still happening today?
0: Oh, yeah, they're still happening. I'm hearing seminarians saying some of the same things I said, and I'm 40-something 40, I'm 40 years a day. And the seminaries don't even know, realize what they're not doing. They don't know how to to address the the. Uh, the issue of racism in the church. And and even as a bishop, I would say even some of the bishops in this country don't want to even deal with it because it means that they have to challenge some of their staunch supporters about some of the racist things they've done and are doing still today. It's not just a problem in the Catholic Church, it's a problem in all the churches that has to be looked at and dealt with.
1: So Bishop, who would you say are some of the people that have best supported you and encouraged you to press forward as you've had these experiences throughout your ministry?
0: There, there's so many people I, I can name. During my seminary years, there was uh, two very powerful women, uh, nuns that helped me. One was Sister Bernadette uh, Ledef, uh Sister of the Holy Family, and the other was Sister Julie Gabilla, who was a sister of, uh, a Mary night sister of the Holy Cross. Uh, those two really, um, uh, I worked with them in a, a night ward of New Orleans, very poor area of the projects, uh, and, uh, through the seminary early seminary years. And, uh, they helped me to, to stay sensitive and conscious of some of the, uh, the issues of racism and injustices that we were facing here in the Archdiocese of New Orleans. Those were my early years. I would say, when I, once I, I was uh, ordained, there were several priests. Uh, one was Archbishop James P. Lyke, uh, Franciscan, who was very instrumental in developing uh, mus- uh, music in the Black Catholic community around the country. He was the producer. Of the first Black Catholic hymnal, uh, Lee Me, Guide Me, published by GIA Publication. He was also a, a very, uh, a man of great integrity. And I, I really appreciated that about him. Another person, a mentor who mentored me was uh, Father Joseph Brown, a Jesuit. He was one of my instructors at uh, Xavier University when I went to the Institute of Black Catholic Studies that, out of Xavier. And uh, he was very, very instrumental in, in guiding me and, and supporting me in my priesthood. Sister Abby Lor- Lorraine Walker, uh school sister of Notre Dame, who is the, who's right now the director of the saint Institute at Alblade School of Theology. Institute uh, uh, promotes African-American pastoral leadership in, in, in the Catholic Church and in uh, other Denominations as well, it's very ecumenical. Program. And uh, she's been very, very uh, good friend and and mentor for me. So those people, I think, primary people. I can name a whole bunch more.
1: So shifting gears a little bit, Bishop. Um, one of the things that I found fascinating about you is your style of preaching. For those of you who have never had the privilege to hear one of your homilies or your talks at a conference. You always start with a song and a gospel song specifically, and you are known for your passion and your work for archiving um, the history of black gospel music and liturgy. So I was wondering if there's one song in particular that you turn to most often to start one of your talks.
0: Well, there's one song. uh, I think it kind of reflects my journey. It's a song written by uh, Dr. Patrick Bradley. It's a song, it's, it's so glad to be here. So glad to be here, so glad to be here. Jesus brought me this far, and I've come to praise his name. So glad to be here, so glad to be here. Jesus brought me this far, and I've come to praise his name. And it's just a a, a true reflect, reflection of my journey in life, and my journey in the priesthood. It, uh, I have realized that God has brought me this far. <laughs> you know <laughs> if it wasn't for the Lord on my side, where would I be? God has shown me a way and has brought me a mighty long way in in my life with that appreciation that kind of that song kind of sums it up, and it has a all kind of little things that develop around that song throughout the song that I really appreciate,
1: it. yeah, you know bishop, one of the the things that I really appreciate about music is its ability to to heal and empower and re-energize um, people, especially people who are doing the difficult work of justice. I, I was thinking about if there's a, a particular song that you would recommend to people who are working in social ministry to encourage them to help them um, have energy to move forward and continue doing this work, especially in moments when they feel burnt out?
0: One of the songs that I use at Confirmations, and my goal is to teach it at every Confirmation, and uh, it would be a song that is adopted by every church in the Archdiocese of New Orleans. (laughs) But it's, uh, it's, uh, tell them I'm a child of God. If anybody asks you who I am, who I am, who I am, if anybody asks you who I am, tell them I'm a child of God. To me that reflects uh, the what it means for us to witness our faith to others and speak to our faith to others about what it means for us to know the Lord, to follow the Lord in each day of our lives. I think another song that that uh, kind of speaks to the justice question is the spiritual that says, I shall not, I shall not be moved. I shall not, I shall not be moved. Just like a tree standing by the water, I shall not be moved. Just like Jesus before me, I shall not be moved. And so it, it just reflects that uh, that real call to stay true to uh, the, uh, and speak to, uh, and give testimony to the justice of God in my life. And, uh, and how we must continue to do that and, uh, and live that each moment of our, our lives, you know. So those, uh, those kind of songs, uh, and they're easy for people to pick up and remember.
1: So one of the things that I learned about you in an interview that I stumbled upon was uh, where you were talking about the three vows of of the priest. And you mentioned in this interview that um, actually chastity is not the hardest of the three, but rather obedience. And you defined obedience as listening and acting upon what you hear from God and the people of God. And you also go on to say there's a greater power at, at work than what exists in the human instruments that are before me. There is a God that makes things right, even if everything looks wrong. And that, those words really just spoke to me and resonated with me. Um, so I wanted to ask you if you could share perhaps a, a couple of examples of where you have seen this obedience and divine providence be made uh, concrete in your life.
0: Yeah, I, I'll, I'll give you a. My first crisis in (laughs) priesthood, right after a year after ordination. Well, first of all, in my in my first assignment, I was given a a Sunday mass that had fifty people attending. Average age was sixty-five, and they told me to do something with the mass. And so I knew that we had a group of boys playing basketball in our gym every Sunday, and I told them, "If y'all going to play basketball in the gym, y'all have to go to church." And so they got their girlfriends and they made a little choir. Within one year, we had 500 people in church. Average age was 24. And you know what happened? Uh, I was reassigned after one year because I brought all those strangers in the church. Now, these were all people in the neighborhood. Many of them were Catholic already. They weren't coming to church and everything like that. And uh, and But they... Uh, they ran me out of that parish and I, I remember going through that first crisis in my life and, uh, and everything and wondering, you know, uh, you know, uh, God, what is this all about? You know, and, uh, you know, is this really what you call me to? And, uh, so I had to go meet with the archbishop right after that. There was this a special meeting called by the parish council. In which they they jumped on me about bringing these strangers in church, and then the next day I had a nine o'clock meeting with the archbishop, and I walked in the archbishop's office and he he uh, told me I was I was reassigned and he gave me my letter of obedience and I I looked at him and I said I said wait a minute you know the here I, we're here and I explained to him everything and I said I, you know I'm in a moment of real crisis about what is happening to me and, and you're telling me I have to be, uh, I'm reassigned and uh, I have to take this assignment by obedience? And I said, uh, and that's when I challenged him, I said, oh, Archbishop, obedience is to the will of God, not to the whim of any one man. And he went ballistic, I mean, went ballistic. And I said, well, uh, I said, in the seminary, that's what they teach us, he called up the seminary professors, and boy, it caused a great stir in the seminary. Believe me, it was the first time I realized—you know—I uh, have to deal with this this challenge of being of, of obedience. What it mean to be obedient to some, uh, to a leader, and to even though it was contradictory to everything I was feeling and saying. And I remember meeting a group of, of black Catholic leaders in the city of New Orleans they had a special meeting they called me to, and we talked for about two hours. They said, you're right about obedience, but you're also wrong because you have to look at more than just yourself and the archbishop. You got to look at the people. You got to look at the the whole church, the call of what it means for us to be in this church together. And, um, and then ask yourself, is it and looking at all of that and putting that all in perspective, what are you really called to do? And uh, that's what's very, very difficult to discern and really listen, not only to one voice or two voices or or your own voice, but to really hear the voices of everyone and the needs of everyone uh, and weigh that in the light of whatever decisions are being made uh, that you have to. You have to deal with it. obedience. To me, is uh, it's it's a, uh, It takes real discernment. Uh, you have to. You have to be willing to to listen to other voices and and uh, and see how God is really calling you to uh, participate, share, be empowered uh, by His Spirit that way. And so that's not a, That's not an easy task.
1: So, as we begin to draw to a close here, Bishop, I I just first of all want to say thank you for sharing such a powerful story um, that is your life. And, you know, given the struggles, the hardships that you've been through, and, you know, the struggles that we're still dealing with today, inside and outside of the church with regards to, um, you know, personal and institutional racism, I'm wondering what is giving you hope?
0: I keep telling people one of my favorite songs is. He's preparing me for something I cannot handle right now. And I really believe that God is, even though I've been 40-something years ordained, uh, 43 years a day, and I'm still, I still feel God is preparing me for something I can't handle right now. i just got to stay open to whatever uh, it is that it is being revealed to me at each moment of my life. I'm I'm a survivor of a, of a heart attack. I realized that uh, how valuable each moment in life is. And God doesn't promise us tomorrow. But when he gives us tomorrow, we have to be ready to, to, to move with that uh, reward in and, and that moment and really uh, allow it to reflect uh, his will in our lives. And so uh, that, that, that gives me hope. I that, you know, he woke me up this morning and started me on my way, gave me a brand new dawning. And really that I believe that that is what God does for us. uh, And when you walk with that blessing and that renewal in your life, you you see, even every struggle is a moment of blessing. And if you you allow it to, to teach you, and it helps me to just say, you know, you know, it's not for me to to save people. It's only for me to just witness my faith and my my love and let God do the rest. Watch how God will open doors. As a bishop, I you know, I'm going into churches in New Orleans as a seminary I couldn't go into. It. So so you know, I know how things have changed. I know how things were and uh I'm not letting the past dictate what I do and don't. Do. just ready to meet the challenge of the moment and allow the Spirit of God that has brought me and kept me to lead me on. And I think that's, that's why I always have hope.
1: So is there a song, Bishop, that you can sing for us to wrap up this, this podcast episode that speaks to, to this hope that you're talking about?
0: When you can't see your way. And you feel that you have gone astray, doing all you know to do, God has not forgotten you. Hold your head up and be true, for God will open doors for you. You can fight on through your darkest day, even though you may not know the way. God will open doors. God will open doors for you.
1: All right, that concludes my conversation with Bishop Cherie. We're now going to transition to the teaching segment of the podcast. I call it the teaching segment not because I'm going to give a lecture or anything like that, but rather because this is the part of the show where I highlight how the guest's words are influenced by or connect to our Catholic social teaching using relevant excerpts and quotes from this tradition. In doing so, hopefully the listeners can see the value of this teaching and no longer see it as the church's best kept secret. If you've been following this season, you have noted that i like to highlight one document. I tried especially to choose a document that is lesser known. For the purpose of this episode, I felt called to draw on the wisdom of the U.S. Bishops' 1979 pastoral letter on racism called Brothers and Sisters to Us. Now, the bishops have written multiple letters on racism, so why this one? Why not their more recent document, Open Wide Our Hearts, which, was, which is actually only four years old? Well, I turn to this document, Brothers and to Us, because it's one of the more direct and boldly stated documents, especially for its time, that addressed this sin of racism. It's also been recognized as, like Catholic social teaching overall, the church's best kept secret. All right, so let's open up this document now and see what it has to say in relation to the bishop's story. There are so many lessons we can take away from the bishop's story that also reflect universal principles and values that we can find in our Catholic social tradition. For me personally, the one theme from this interview that has stuck with me the most is the theme of refusing to accept things as they are. I was so moved by his observation about human beings and God. From his lived experiences, he learned that human beings are broken. However, there is a greater power at work than what we see from the flawed human instruments we interact with on a daily basis. With this truth in mind, you saw in his story this boldness and courage to speak truth to power. And for doing this, he often got in trouble, didn't he? But that's the role of the prophet, to denounce injustice, to denounce the status quo that advantages one group of people and disadvantages others. What does brothers and sisters to us have to say about this theme? I'm just going to share with you just a few excerpts that specifically mention this theme of the status quo. And it's really interesting, actually, because it only took two paragraphs for the bishops to point out that part of the reason that racism still exists today is because we are unwilling to dismantle the status quo or what's considered normal or familiar. We don't want to make people uncomfortable. And so we refuse to make the necessary changes to truly have a more loving and just society. The bishops acknowledge, though, that the, there has been progress, especially at the legislative and policy level. They even concede that explicit racism, or what Father Brian Massingale calls common sense racism, in other words, person A doing something or saying something insensitive to person B because of the of the color of their skin, they acknowledge that for the most part, this has been eliminated. Well, perhaps not eliminated, maybe that's a stretch, but it is certainly not socially acceptable anymore. However, the bishops argue that a fundamental change in this area has still not occurred, and I would agree with them even today in 2022. So in this second paragraph, they say, quote, Today, the sense of urgency has yielded to an apparent acceptance of the status quo. The climate of crisis engendered by demonstrations, protests, and confrontations has given way to a mood of indifference, and other issues occupy our attention, end quote. This last part applies so much to what we're seeing today. Something that I wrestle with regularly in the position that I am in. We don't see the same vigor and passion for racial injustice that we see when we talk about issues like abortion. Yet they're both pro-life issues. And here's another thing too. When we hear that word at the end of this quote here, the word indifference, to me that implies passivity. But I believe it's actually the opposite. Whether it's at the subconscious level or not, I think that Folks that are in the status quo are are actively indifferent. Why? Well, why wouldn't they be, right? Because they want to keep things as they are. They recognize that if they give attention and interest to movements seeking to significantly change the culture which they currently experience privilege in, then they won't experience that privilege anymore. They no longer will have access to the same, same power and resources and capital. The maintenance of the status quo is mentioned explicitly again a little later on in the document. In this segment, the bishops refute the argument that racism is no longer a problem in our country today. They go on to list all the different areas of society where racism raises its ugly head. They mention housing, poverty, unemployment, and education, just to name a few. Well, in Bishop Sherry's case, we can also add the seminary and and the parish as well. Then they go on to talk about the negative sentiments we sometimes hear toward people of color, that they're getting an unfair advantage through programs like affirmative action, for example. Or perhaps a more modern example would be when we hear people argue that we shouldn't say black lives matter because all lives matter, not just theirs. Or even a more contemporary example is this issue of of mental illness. We sometimes hear some people say that this affects everyone, no matter your race or ethnicity. So they take issue when special resources are only allocated to minority communities. Well, let's listen what the bishops say in response to these types of sentiments. They say, quote, At times, protestations, claiming that all persons should be treated equally, reflect the desire to maintain a status quo that favors one race and social group at the expense of the poor and the non-white, end quote. We see then that though common sense racism is actually much less common and acceptable today, racism continues to live and spread in more subtle and insidious ways than in the past. And it's interesting to think about the pre-civil rights days. The dominant culture would never be caught saying things like this, that all people should be treated equal. But now that there's some degree of equality happening by giving a preferential option for these oppressed people, they want to talk about equality. It's just interesting, isn't it? I invited us all to really think about that, to sit with that for a moment. So in short, what does Bishop Sherry teach us and what does this document teach us? That we are called to speak up, that we are called to reject the status quo, to dismantle it, especially if it's advantaging only some people and disadvantaging a whole lot of other people. And this is something that we saw in Bishop Sherry's story, isn't it? He refused to accept things as they are whether it was his seminary teacher calling Hispanics and blacks deviants were the parish that asked for his reassignment for bringing in quote-unquote strangers, he never allowed these things to just go unchecked. In the face of injustice, he raised his voice and pushed back. Because if he didn't do that, he recognized that even as a person of color, even as a black man, he too would be culpable for the continued existence of racism in our society today. And so this is the, the... the main point I want to end this segment with. I'm going to share with you um, a longer quote from the document, Brothers and Sisters to Us, that speaks to this point, that we are all called to speak up. Because if we're not, then we're part of the problem as well. So here's the quote from the bishop's document. It says, quote, members of both groups give unwitting approval by accepting things as they are. Perhaps no single individual is to blame, The sinfulness is often anonymous but nonetheless real. The sin is social in nature in that each of us, in varying degrees, is responsible. All of us, in some measure, are accomplices. As our recent pastoral letter on moral values states, the absence of personal fault for an evil does not absolve one of all responsibility. We must seek to resist and undo injustices we have not seized, lest we become bystanders who tactically endorse evil and so share in guilt in it. All right, y'all, that's a wrap for another episode of Reclaiming Social Justice. Thank you for tuning in. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Bishop Cherie and that you learned a thing or two from the 1979 Bishop's document, The Brothers and Sisters to Us. Don't forget to share this episode on your social media so that other people can enjoy it and, and hopefully they can learn something from it as well. And also subscribe to Reclaiming Social Justice wherever you listen to your podcast, whether that be Spotify or Apple Podcast or any of the other apps that exist in the world today. And remember, you can leave me your feedback and thoughts on not just this episode, but on previous episodes or the podcast as a whole. There's a feedback form in the show notes. So I will see you next time on the last Wednesday of the month for another episode of Reclaiming Social Justice.
0: Take care, y'all.